Yeah, I just want to talk briefly about, uh, about uh, my current ministry as a professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary. Um, and um, just to get it on people's radar, a lot of people know we have a seminary, uh, but a lot of few people know we have a college. And uh, I meet people all the time that say, oh, we didn't know you had a college. I say, yeah, we, we have a college, and women can come to that, you know. Um, and so um, just wanted to put on, I know most of the kids in our church are middle school and older, uh, younger, I mean. And so um, just as you're thinking forward about what to do for college education, I'd really encourage you to check out our website um, at Bethlehem College and Seminary, and, um, and you can learn a lot more about that. I'd be happy to talk to you about that after, if you're interested in knowing more. Um, but let's go straight to God's Word. If you will, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So, coming back here, it was like homecoming for me since I was here, since I were here for about 10 years while I was going to Ohio State, and, and we haven't been gone that long, but as look around, a lot of people look the same, which is, that's encouraging. But your kids are all bigger and taller, and they, they're the ones that make me feel old, okay? Because I can remember some of these when they were toddlers, and now some of them are te- teens, preteens, and so it's really... Um, Amazing. Another thing that's making me feel old and has changed since last time I was here is I now need these to read. So I got to look like an old man when I read now. But um, such is such is life. Okay. Um. Though when I uh, started thinking about uh, what to preach about coming here, um, I had a certain idea in mind and. As usual, the Lord has different plans, and the tone of this morning is a lot different than what I thought it might be. Nevertheless, God's word's true, and I'm sure that what he has for us uh, is good for us. So let's pray one more time and ask God to bless um, our reading and um, listening to the word. God, Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord God, for this opportunity. And as Lee has prayed and reminded us, um, this is part of a greater plan. The greater plan is that you would get glory and that we would find our joy in you, Lord Jesus. And it's a very hard task to do when there's things around us that don't seem joyful. So we ask, God, that you would give us wisdom in this. Give us wisdom as we look to your word and help us, Lord, to find our peace, our happiness, and our all in you. But your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. So I've entitled this sermon a question, what does it mean to be wise? Or what does it mean to have true wisdom? Philosophy, the word philosophy and the study of philosophy, literally means the study of wisdom. So you think, if you want to know about wisdom, you should study philosophy. I recently ran across a quote by an evangelical philosopher by the name of Michael Ray. He wrote the following. He said, recently a student from another university emailed me, and he asked, among other things, What philosophy books or articles I'd recommend for the purpose of helping him to grow in wisdom? My answer was, I wouldn't recommend philosophical texts for that purpose at all. Rather, I'd recommend scripture. If philosophy as a discipline or even theology were to aim its efforts at being a production of self-contained wisdom or a general theory of right living, 
It would, I think, be aiming at the production of being a rival to Scripture. And that is a project that I think Christian philosophers and theologians ought not to do. Indeed, to my mind, that sort of project involves hubris, to which I would heartily agree. If I want to know about wisdom, I want to look to the Bible. But we need to slow down a little bit, because that's very akin to the Sunday school answer, Jesus. He's always said the Bible. That's always a good answer. Okay? So where do we find wisdom? The Bible, clearly. Okay? But what exactly is wisdom? What's it mean to be a wise person? And that I think we should slow down a little bit and think a little more about it, even though we know the Bible is going to direct us that. So it's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to take some time and explore the things that Paul says about the notion of wisdom that will help us give a better insight how to understand what it means to truly be wise. All right? So the first topic that Paul deals with in the beginning of 1 Corinthians is a plea for the Corinthian believers to be united. Look again at verse 10. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The ensuing verses show that there evidently were factions that had arisen among the Corinthian church. Some of the Corinthian believers were saying that they were primarily followers of Paul. Some were saying they were primary followers of Apollos, another good Christian teacher. And some were saying that they were followers of Peter or Cephas. And then you always have that real uh, spiritual guy in the bunch. So I follow Jesus. I remember at Bible college and seminary, you'd be discussing some theological issues saying, well, I think the Bible teaches this, or I think the Bible teaches that. And you always get that jerk that comes on, I believe what Jesus believes. It's like, well, I think we all want to do that, right? Okay, It's not enough. What exactly did Jesus believe? That was the question, right? But Paul sees through all this sort of tribalism and factionalism, okay? He sees it as a failure on the part of the believers in Corinth to recognize that they were part of one body. They were part of one identity that had no such divisions or would allow such. In making his plea the Corinthians, for the Corinthian believers to be unified, he says in verse 17, for Christ sent me to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So why does Paul bring that up in the midst of these uh, different believers arguing with each other? Well, the point here seems to be that Paul is reminding them that what originally united them had nothing to do with Paul or Cephas or Paulus, but had to do with the gospel. Lee was sharing about, um, and I was, I was re-remembering that story this morning myself, thinking about when I first called Lee and and uh, we had our, uh, our discussion at um, Smoky Bones. I remember, I remember Paige was there. She wasn't married to Corey yet. And um, I, 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 sometimes I talk to her later. She goes, I didn't even know what you were about back then. You were just, just sort of like grilling my brother-in-law. I didn't know what it was about. And what I can tell you what I was mainly about is I wanted to see, is this a church that was going to be united around the gospel? Is Jesus is what's central to this church? And Paul's reminded that's what was central to the Corinthian church when he helped found it. It was the gospel message. Oh, there's lots of other things that come with being part of a church, lots of good things. But the central thing is a saving message. There's a savior that unites a people together. So the point seems to be here that Paul is reminding Corinthian believers that they'd been originally united in the gospel. And furthermore, Paul says what united them in the gospel was not only this message, but how the message was received and how it was delivered. He claims it was not delivered in words of eloquent wisdom. And why does Paul emphasize that? He says, if it had been, 
He says the cross would have been emptied of its power. Now that's a strange comment to make. So he basically says, if I had shared the gospel in a certain way, the power of the cross would have lost its power. And furthermore, what does that have to do with the fact that these guys are fighting? Okay. Why is the fact that the way the gospel was originally delivered to them without eloquent wisdom, what's that got to do with what, why they should be united? In order to answer that question, I think we have to see the ensuing discussion that Paul launches into beginning in verse 18. The fact that preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ had originally united the Corinthian believers and had not been delivered in words of eloquent wisdom prompts Paul into a discussion of what counts as wisdom and what counts as foolishness. The various appearances of the word wisdom, which is something like 23 times in the first three chapters, and the word folly or foolishness appears about six times, shows that Paul thought that the understanding of what true wisdom was was at the heart of resolving this issue. In other words, Paul didn't seem to think that the idea of wisdom was some sort of abstract philosophical notion. It was something very central and very practical and something that the Corinthian believers needed to be reminded of. Note that when Paul distinguishes the faithful preaching of the gospel message here as powerful because it's not given in words of eloquent wisdom, he is not necessarily denouncing wisdom per se or saying that the gospel is somehow a separate notion from wisdom. Okay? Why believe that? We have to see how he uses the word wisdom throughout the next verses. So just trace a few with me here, if you would. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. He refers to this wisdom being a wisdom of the world. Look over to chapter 3, verse 19. He calls it a wisdom of this world. Back in chapter 1, verse 26, he calls it a wisdom according to worldly standards. And in chapter 2, verse 5, he simply refers to it as the wisdom of men. And the very next verse, verse 6, he calls it a wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age. So when Paul's claiming that the gospel message that they originally heard was not delivered in words of eloquent wisdom, he's not saying, remember when I first delivered the gospel to you and how I stumbled and I was kind of a dummy and I tried to make things really stupid for you? He's not saying that. He's saying it wasn't delivered in a certain kind of wisdom a wisdom that's characterized as being worldly. Okay? But what does that mean to have worldly wisdom? And that's an important point to point out because if we want to be truly wise, we want to make sure that we have the right wisdom and not worldly wisdom. So what exactly is worldly wisdom? As many biblical commentators have noted, the New Testament uses the word world in different ways. The original Greek word is cosmos, where you use the word cosmos. And it means more than just the earth. It means something like the entire universe. Everything created. Everything apart from God. Okay? And it's used in a variety of ways in the New Testament. For instance, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, we're told that the invisible attributes of God have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And so the world there is clearly just the created world. It's just like in Ephesians 1, 4 that uh, claims that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So it's clear that the word world there is just referring to the created order. But most of us as Christians who are familiar with our Bibles, we know when we hear the word world or worldly, we automatically usually associate with negative connotations because the Bible has other usages of world that seem to have that. So for instance, uh, the New Testament scholar George Eldon Ladd commented on this use of the word world in the New Testament. He says, quote, humanity in comparison to God is seen as fallen, as sunk in sin. And therefore, it's hostile to God. 
In this way, cosmos, or the word world, or worldly, is used of mankind, and it acquires overtones of evil. The world of humans is not evil per se, for human beings are God's creatures, and God, uh, all God's work is good. But when people are viewed as they actually exist, they're seen in rebellion against God, and as such, the world is viewed as sinful. So when Paul seems to describe wisdom as worldly here in 1 Corinthians 1, he seems to be saying there's a type of wisdom that's primarily characterized as being in rebellion against God. But what does that mean? That's fairly abstract. You know, I understand what it means for a person to be in rebellion against God. What does it mean for wisdom to be in rebellion against God? I think we can begin to better, begin to better see what a wisdom rebellion against God looks like when we see how Paul contrasts it throughout 1 Corinthians. So I'll just highlight a few of these. Look in chapter 1, verse 18. He says that the word of the cross is folly, is foolishness. To who? To those who are perishing, i.e. the world, those who are rebelling against God. Verse 22 and 23 says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and a folly to Gentiles. Paul specifically claims here that Gentiles that reject the gospel of Christ see it as foolishness, and that Jews who reject the gospel of Christ see it as less than the true wisdom of God. Paul makes a distinction most clearly in 1 Corinthians 2.14. He says there, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them intellectually, because they are spiritually discerned. So when Paul references wisdom as worldly, as he does in 1 Corinthians, he sees me mainly talking about the wisdom of people who are in rebellion against God. For when true wisdom is presented to those who are only wise in a worldly way, then that wisdom seems foolish to them. But why call this wisdom? Why don't we just... Instead of calling it worldly wisdom, why doesn't Paul just call it what it is, foolishness? Because that's what it is. I think mainly Paul wants to highlight something here that we need to just take a minute to think about. I think one way to think about what sort of wisdom Paul's getting at is to ask, does wisdom exist apart from the Bible? Can you get good advice or true things apart from the Bible? Um, it's been sort of striking me lately when I've asked somebody with expertise uh, how to help me, like I won't know how to do something. I'll say, how do you do this? And I know this person's like skilled at this. You know what most people say to me nowadays? Oh, look at YouTube. So you, you do this for a living. Can't you just give me a pointer? You know? Now everybody says, go, go to YouTube. And there's all these, really, I, I bought a house last year and I've learned that YouTube has a bunch of great videos that saved me a lot of money, okay, to figure out how to fix things that I had paid somebody else to do. So there's clearly wisdom in lots of places. I can get a lot of good advice and good things from lots of places that aren't necessarily from the Bible. Okay. Um, I was just randomly looking on uh, uh, the internet one day to give an example here, and I found one in the New York Times, and I found an article entitled, Caring for Siblings of Sick or Disabled Children. And as the title makes clear, and it was written by a medical doctor, this author, the, the doctor seeks to give helpful advice for parents to let their non-sick or non-disabled children's needs not be overshadowed by the needs of their special needs children. I read the article, and I'm not a parent or a parent of special needs children, but I think there was little, if anything, there that anybody in this room would disagree with. So wisdom can obviously be found 
in lots of places, okay? Now, obviously, we're always weighing everything against the Bible, right? We don't uh, blindly or naively take in wisdom in other places apart from the Bible. But it shouldn't surprise us if the world is made by God and, um, and even fallen man is made in his image that we will occasionally find even wisdom outside the Bible. Furthermore, the Bible itself actually instructs us to look to the world. Did you know that? The very wisdom of God tells us that there's wisdom in the world to be found. Go look at the ant. See how he works and stores. Look at the sparrow. Look at the lily of the field. So wisdom is in lots of places, okay? even though it's primarily in the Bible. Now I think clarifying this point is actually very important, for it seems to me that one of the reasons that Paul identifies wisdom here as worldly is not so much that the wisdom that, that he's talking about here is unwise in content or necessarily contradicts scripture, but it's a wisdom that's problematic because it's formed by a certain sort of sinful perspective or attitude. It comes from a certain sort of disposition that's in rebellion of God. Thus, when those who are shaped primarily by worldly wisdom come into contact with true wisdom, their rebellion shows forth and they reject it. A couple examples from scripture to make this point. The first and foremost would be the life of Christ. Notice in chapter one, verse 30, Paul refers to Jesus as the wisdom of God. In other words, Jesus isn't just a wise prophet. He's the very fountain of wisdom. He's God incarnate. But when the very wisdom of God comes into the world as the Messiah to preach his message of the kingdom coming, how do the religious leaders of his day treat him? They kill him. Why? A lot of reasons, but just to simplify to make my point, one of the reasons seems to be that they, he did not fit that their expectations of what the Messiah should be. They were wise in their own eyes and thought they understood what a Messiah should or should not be. And Jesus did not fit that. They say, okay, well, they disagreed. No, they killed him. And that's the worldliness of their wisdom. They were wrong in the content of what they believed about the Messiah. But their main problem was they had a heart in rebellion and disposition against the truth. And it showed forth when Jesus presented them with it. Another story. Think of Naaman the leper, the Assyrian... Um, uh, general in 2 Kings 5. Though a pagan from Syria, Naaman hears about the prophet Elijah in Samaria who can possibly heal him of his leprosy. So in verses 9 to 12 of 2 Kings 5, we see that Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and he stood at the door of Elijah's house. He's a very wealthy man, very powerful man. And Elijah simply sends a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall then be restored and you shall be clean. But the story tells us that Naaman got upset. He got mad, and he went away angry. He said, behold, listen to his response. Behold, I thought the prophet would come out and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over my leprosy and cure it. Are not the rivers in my, uh, in my country better than the waters of all Israel? Could I not wash and be clean in them? See his reaction? He says, this is not how healings happen. You know? This is how healings are supposed to happen. Now the story ends well for Naaman. If you know the rest of that story, his servant actually convinces him, to, hey, what can it hurt? Go wash in the Jordan. He does, and he's healed. But note the expectations of Naaman. In his own pagan wisdom, he thought he knew how God must work. In his own wisdom, he thought he knew how God's wisdom would go. 
And since God did not fit his expectations, he saw the godly advice of Elijah as foolishness. It's not, the worldliness of this wisdom is not so much in content, though it's clearly false teachings as well, but it's, it's a worldliness and a disposition of the heart. It doesn't accept the things of God, doesn't want the things of God. Has it figured out the way he or she think it should go? Now, how about you and me? Do we all have it always worked out how, how God's gonna do things? Don't misunderstand me. We should plan. We should be seeking to make wise decisions in all we do. Okay? We should be seeking to do the best that we can. Okay? But those who plan should always prayerfully put their things before their Lord. God and God alone has the right to direct our paths. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans, but the Lord directs his steps. And that's what true wisdom is. Not just a man planning his steps, but a man who's seeking to be led by the Lord. Just like this morning, I mean, we, we had our worship service planned. We did not expect for Paul to collapse, but the Lord had different plans. So we seek to have godly wisdom, so we study the scriptures. We try to get good advice from other things. And we seek to have the Spirit guide us, so we pray, and we constantly are weighing everything we read and take in according to scripture, so that our wisdom will not be worldly. But if worldly wisdom is more than just having unbiblical beliefs or bad theology, if worldly wisdom can be characterized by a sinful attitude, then we need to be repentant of more than just bad theology. So it seems to me that a person with worldly wisdom, whose, whose wisdom is characterized uh, by this world, is a wisdom that's primarily in rebellion against God. Though this rebellion may have false beliefs and have unbiblical content, I think worldly wisdom is primarily characterized by this sinful attitude. For the natural man, who is characterized by the world, does not reject the things of the Spirit because he cannot intellectually understand them. No, the primary reason he rejects them is because he does not want such wisdom. It looks foolish. It tastes bad. It smells funny. It does not fit his expectations about what is good and what is right. And as Christians, we should be very wary of this as well. We should be open to how the Lord is directing us. So our wisdom will be, in fact, wise, true wisdom as well. In 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, chapters 1 and 2, Paul highlights the difference between the wisdom of this world with what he calls, what the world sees as foolishness, namely, the wisdom of God. Interestingly, Paul in this passage seems to own up to this characterization of God. I, I, I personally, this almost sounds blasphemous to me. We're calling the wisdom of God the foolishness of God. But Paul owns it. He says, yeah, it's foolishness. He does so, I think, in order to highlight the radical difference between what the world calls wisdom and what is true wisdom. Look again at 1 Corinthians 1.18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. If I was writing this, so again, my expectations. If I was writing this, I think I would have said uh, the word of the cross is the wisdom of God. That would have been a nice transition from talking about foolishness. You think that Paul would have said that? And it is. The, the cross is the wisdom of God. 
But Paul is emphasizing here how different and how much better God's wisdom is. It's a powerful wisdom. It's an effective wisdom. It's a practical wisdom. God used the same language elsewhere, most famously in Romans 1.16, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul characterizes the gospel here in 1 Corinthians as the power um, as well. In 1.19, Paul quotes Isaiah 29, where Isaiah wrote, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul goes on to explain how this verse has come true in Christ. In verse 20, he asks a series of rhetorical questions. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And in verse 21, he explains how these things are so. How the quote-unquote wise and the scribe and the debaters, if you're going to write this day, the scientists of this age have been made foolish. How? Because the wisdom of God has made them foolish. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul again here emphasizes the content of the gospel preaching as folly. Not because it's truly foolish, but because in the eyes of the world it appears foolish. Thus you see that Paul is using the word foolishness here ironically. And there's much in scripture that we would call godly wisdom. But Paul is explicitly referring to the foolishness of God or God's wisdom here, particularly tying it to the message of the cross. Again, verse 18, 118. Paul calls this wisdom the word of the cross. In verse 23, he says it's a message of Christ crucified. Verse 21, the message is, quote, to those, to save those who believe. And Paul refers to Christ as the wisdom of God in verse 24 and says that God made Jesus to become to us wisdom from God in chapter 1, verse 30. But why is Paul using, again, the word foolishness ironically here? Why, and why is he particularly tying the notion of foolishness to the saving message of Jesus Christ? I think it's because he's trying to do in a parallel way what he did with worldly wisdom. And the way that he primarily went to characterize worldly wisdom as being uh, problematic in its attitude, I think the wisdom of God he's primarily characterizing because it's attendant with a certain attitude as well. In other words, the primary difference between worldly wisdom and God's wisdom, or the foolishness of God, is the attitude of the heart. Remember that there were factions here in, first, in uh, the Corinthian church. They had arisen... Uh, arguing with each other, taking sides. There's, there doesn't seem anything, there's, there doesn't seem to be a hint of heresy in chapters one and two. Paul does not seem to be focusing on, you guys are believing this wrong thing. Now, here's some things later he's going to deal with in 1 Corinthians, he'll deal with that. But at this point in the letter, he's not dealing with any sort of false teaching, heretical teaching. He's mainly dealing with a bunch of believers who are fighting and arguing. He says, you need to be united in the same mind and judgment. What did Paul want them to be united in? Clearly, his emphasis upon the foolishness of God is to be uh, united on the gospel. But not just be united on the content. Let's all get together and agree about the facts. So you, we have a, state, a statement of faith or uh, an elder affirmation of faith. Every, church, every good church has one of these. But, but if church is more than that, right? We're not just getting together and affirming just certain intellectual content. 
what had originally united the different Corinthians into one church was not just the content of the gospel, but the spirit of the gospel. It wasn't simply the content of the message alone that united them. In chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes something similar to what he had said in chapter 1, verse 18. See how these are very similar. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, again, worldly wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. The delivery of the gospel was not just a certain sort of content that was delivered to Corinthians, though it was, had to be true, had to be biblical. It was also delivered in a certain way. The deliverance gospel was made not with worldly wisdom, but was demonstrated by the spirit and power so that their faith, their trust in God, would not rest on worldly wisdom. If the gospel had been preached with worldly wisdom, then it might be have been received on that basis. If you had been argued into being a Christian, you say, well, the reason I'm a Christian is I read this really intense apologetics book and, and you know, I know the five ways of Aquinas and I know all these sort of detailed, you know, flim flammy, you know, you know. I'm a philosopher by training, but still I just, I get kind of annoyed when people sort of make a big deal about this sort of stuff. You know, I, I can play that game as well. But you didn't come to faith because of that kind of stuff. I grew up in Sunday school. I heard all kinds of good biblical content my whole life. I heard the gospel my whole life. I, I, I was never a point in my life was I ever, atheism, it was even ever a temptation at all. I remember growing up with, uh, some of you may remember those sort of felt boards. You had paper cutout characters and Jesus would be in the cave and you'd roll the stone away and he'd come out. I mean, I, I remember that stuff from like kindergarten. So I had no problem believing the Bible. Okay? I knew the content well. But I didn't come to faith at 13 when I did come to faith. Not because like, oh, now I get it. I never understood it before. It gripped me in a different way when I was 13 years old. I now realize, oh, it's not just that Jesus died on the cross. He died for me and I need him. I want him. That's what changed. I didn't get any new data. I got no new argument. My heart had changed. So Paul seems to be claiming that the wisdom, or excuse me, Paul seems to be claiming here that the church is not properly called Christian simply because it's united around certain theological facts and doctrine. Please don't misunderstand me. It's clearly united around theological facts and doctrine. Okay? But not alone. A church, Paul claims, is truly Christian because its members have responded to this message in a certain way with godly faith. If worldly wisdom is a wisdom characterized as people in rebellion against God, no matter how smart they are or how many letters they have after their name, then godly wisdom that makes up the gospel, i.e. the foolishness of God that Paul refers to, is characterized by a different sort of spirit, a spirit of submission, of humility, of love. That's what makes us united. This is why Paul reminds them that they not only received the gospel, they not only received the true message, but they received it in a certain way. Paul's gospel preaching, as well as any faithful gospel preaching, cannot primarily be flavored by rhetorical flair or sophisticated argumentation. Notice how I said the word primarily. Any good preacher is going to try to be a good communicator. 
But that's not the primary emphasis of the gospel. And the reception of the gospel must be received in the same way. I didn't become a believer because I got really smart one day. I had to hear a message, but my heart had to be changed. The situation of factionalism in Corinth is what prompted Paul to talk about wisdom. Christians were boasting in merely human leaders. But Paul writes at the end of chapter 1, verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in what? The Lord. Later in the book, in chapter 8, verse 1, he'll comment that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The divisions within the Corinthian church show that their knowledge, their quote-unquote wisdom, was one that was showing itself not to be a godly wisdom, no matter how theologically correct they may happen to have been. A truly wise person, according to the Bible, is one who lives in faithful submission to God and in love with other believers. So that's all you got to do to be wise. You just got to love other people. That's easy, right? That's impossible. (laughs) In our own strength. Man, marriage is great when it's great, right? But sometimes it's not so great. And if I'm relying upon my pure human reserves to keep my marriage together, it's not going to stay together. I don't have children, okay? But I know how people can love their children. And children are more lovable at some times than others. But if your basis for loving your children is just purely in your own reserves, in your own heart, if that's all that you're working on, those reserves are going to run really dry sometimes. You need a fountain of love and humility that never runs dry. And that doesn't come naturally from you or me. We cannot do this on our own. The Corinthian church wasn't really any different from any church today. Um, I think Cindy and I were probably a little naive when we left North Point. As much as we love North Point, we were excited about being part of Bethlehem Baptist Church, John Piper's church. We thought, it's like going to Jerusalem, you know. We're gonna, it's just going to be great all the time. You know? And guess what? That church is just bigger, but it's just as messed up as any other church. It's got problems. It's got issues. You know? Every church does. Why? We're sinners. Every one of us is. Okay? And so it's a struggle to live together as husband and wife, as parent and child, and as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we have to rely upon the Spirit of God. We just don't get together and talk about facts from the Bible We're pleading for God, for his spirit to live and dwell in us, to be with us, that his fruit, quote unquote, the fruit of the spirit would uh, bubble up from us. And you'll always see that the world will always see this as strange. A passage that the Lord brought to my attention when um, when we had our our interruption early. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Look at verse 10. So Paul, I won't give you the context because the point I want to make doesn't require it. Paul says in verse 10, As sorrowful yet always rejoicing, He's talking about his own life. Notice that. 
My life is sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Doesn't that sound nuts? Can someone be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing? Worldly wisdom can't be that way. Worldly wisdom says you're one or the other. You're either always happy or you're sad. Godly wisdom says these are two realities that can be true in you. And I don't think they're naturally true. We need the spirit to Naples to be this way. But this can characterize us. Even when things are going, even when things are going well around in our immediate, there's always sorrow somewhere in the world we should be sorrowful about. There's a dying world that still needs to hear the gospel. So even if everything's immediately going well in my own family, my own church, there's always something to be sorrowful about. So we don't, we're not schizophrenic. We're trying to be biblical. We're trying to be wise the way God wants us to. But we need God's help to be that. It's too naturally easy for us to fall in our ruts of sinfulness, to either despair or to live in some sort of false hope. So we have to replenish daily. We have to continually go to the living water. We have to continually go to the bread of life. It's only by daily refalling in love with our Savior again and again and being overwhelmed again and again by his goodness and his majesty in us, to us in the gospel. How he displayed for us in his sacrifice and the resurrection of his son for us, that any of this can be true. Despite how orthodox our theology, our beliefs may be, our wisdom will only be worldly if it's not shaped by a heart of love and a heart of the Spirit. And we need the Spirit to do that for us. At the end of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes the following, verses 18 and 19. He says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, so that he can become truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. So may we seek true wisdom. It's not that insightful wisdom can't be found outside of the Bible. Clearly it can. And of course we can accidentally and subtly accept things that are unbiblical. And we're constantly trying to sift that and weigh things against scripture. But our wisdom can be worldly in more than one way. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness to me. Jesus is our source of eternal life. And that's what makes the Bible so wonderful and wise, because that's what it points to. It's who it points to. So may our hearts and our minds continually Turn to Christ. May we rely upon him in the spirit. May the gospel truths become true wisdom as they sink into our hearts and change us. And may our wisdom, may it be so that our wisdom is characterized as foolishness. Because when the world looks at us and agrees we're wise, that's probably because more than likely we look too much like them. And it's only when we try to look like our savior that we truly look like fools. For the foolishness of God, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.25, is wiser than men. Let's pray. God in heaven.